Yeah, okay. Okay. Let's let's pray. Good evening. Let's pray. <laughs> uh, dear Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace again, Lord, and we just thank you for this evening, Lord. We thank you for these people being here and Lord, we thank you for everything you do for us. We thank you for your your grace and mercy on us and sending your son to the cross for our sins. And we just pray that you would help us to worship you, focus in our, our minds on you, and uh, learn something in Daniel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. And can it be? How are we doing tonight, gang? 
Are you guys familiar with the Fast and Furious car movie franchise? Okay, that's what this is going to be like tonight, Fast and Furious. We're going to cover the notes that I gave you guys, and then we're going to talk about how some of this ties to modern day stuff. And I have some information I pulled off a blog about how it all ties together. So you don't have all the note notes, but you have a crux of the notes that we're going to be looking at, okay? Um, so last time was all history, and I know that baffled a lot of us, including me. But tonight, we're moving from uh, Antichrist to the Antichrist, and your opening little note there says, the prophecy refers to the last great enemy of God in Israel at the time of the end, and that's from the King James Version. Between verse 35 and 36, 35 where we left off last week, and 36 where we're starting tonight, over 2,000 years have passed. Okay? So as we look at this, you have to remember this is where all of the history that we've looked at and a lot of Daniel stops, and now the real prophecy starts taking place, especially in chapter 11. <clears throat> now, we're, we're shifting things around, and from now on, we're going to ask you guys to sit in these two sections and up close as possible, because we're going to have mics at the end of the rows, and if you want to add something or say something, we're going to ask that you raise hands so somebody can get you a mic, because the folks that are online listening and watching, they're not able to hear what you're saying. So they want to know more of what's going on and what's being said, what's being read, and what you guys' thoughts are, okay? Even though there's typically only a couple of dozen of us here, all right? So um, with that, I'm going to read the verses from Daniel and Isaiah that are on the sheets, but I may ask one of you guys to read it too, all right, when time comes, because my voice probably isn't going to hold out through the whole thing. <clears throat> So in 36 through 39, where we start, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the end of time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute a land out of, uh, at a price. Who's he talking about? The Antichrist, absolutely. It's, it's, it's going to become more and more clear as we look at this, how this all folds together. But in 36, verse 36, the Antichrist is introduced, but he's also the one that's the little horn in chapter 7 in verse 8. He's the same one that's the prince in 9, 26. We see him over and over again, but the sifting and purifying of Israel not only is taking place then, 
but it's going to take place again in the end times. And we're going to get into that a little deeper in a minute. Um, the persecution is going to still stay on Israel until the end comes, until the very battle of Armageddon. And that it's, it's, it's going to be overwhelming for them because the whole world is basically going to be against them. So what takes place in this is the death of Antichus in that time frame was not the end of the persecution for the Jews. And we know that because we've seen it over and over and over again over the years. So that doesn't end it. The closing verses in the chapter are, are the future fulfillment. When we get down to 40 through about 45, that's, that's, it's a dual fulfillment, if you would. And we've talked about Daniel being a dual fulfillment of prophecies that everything is, Daniel saw that took place already in history is a foreshadowing of what's going to take place in, at the end times. So keep that in mind. <clears throat> the Antichrist is going to come, but the Messiah is going to return, and, and it's, it's going to be done in a heartbeat. Um, in verse 36 in the uh, King James, it says, He shall do according to his will. Now, what is his will? The Antichrist's will is to have man serve him, and it's the same thing with Satan. But Antichrist is going to magnify himself and he's going to set himself up above everyone else. And that's going to take place and it's going to be a little overwhelming. Paul's description is similar. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, he says, Who opposes and exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, for that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, Satan's going to do that, too. They're going to they're do this role switching back and forth in the end days. He's the beast of Revelation 13, who is worshipped by all who dwell on the earth. He's also pointed out that the kingdoms in Isaiah 14, and we're going to read that because it's here on the sheet. From his beginning, Satan's chief aim was having people worship him as God. And Isaiah 14 tells us that. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost highest heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the top of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. All these prophets have bits and pieces of what's going to take place, and it's all going to be meshed together. <clears throat> the supremacy of the Antichrist is only for a limited time, though. And he will prosper, but only until the day of the Great Tribulation, in the last days. God's wrath is going to prevail, and God sets Satan boundaries. He sets the time frame. He sets what he can do and how he can do it. Um. The indignation against Israel and the blasphemy against God is only going to last one week in those 770s of weeks that we looked at. But it's still going to last that one week. And no one, now this is where it gets tricky, because theologians look at this differently. I put it in your notes as one set thing. 
because most of the theologians and scholars believe this. But no one other than a Jew would represent himself as being Israel's Messiah. Because if he was not a Jew, he'd be recognized immediately as an imposter. But there's some other scholars that believe he may try to pass himself off as a Jew and not be a Jew. So that's another possibility. The Antichrist is a hater of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Antichrist utterly denies Jesus, pretending to be him the promised Messiah in the end days. The Antichrist's pride is to have um, men grovel at his feet, and if they won't yield willingly, he's going to force them to yield. So it's going to be intense in those end days. Satan is going to be bound to the Antichrist himself, and he's going to offer him influences and honors like nobody understands. And in that 70th week, he's going to be Satan's greatest hour because the Antichrist is going to be his willing tool, but Satan is going to use all of the things that attract men to himself, to the Antichrist, to lure them and trap them into where he's trying to take them. <clears throat> Um, you remember when Satan wanted to give God all the things if he would just bow down and worship him? Think about some of those verses. From the very beginning in Matthew 4, 9, he says, all these things I will give to thee if you'll just fall down and worship me. And then in 1 Timothy 3, 6, when he at last received the worship of men and the pinnacle uh, of his pride is going to come out. But he says in John 2.18, you have heard that the Antichrist will come. I mean, in 11.36, it says he shall prosper till the indignation has been accomplished. So this time frame is going to take place, and it doesn't appear like it, but it actually is going to happen that during this battle that's going to take place just before Armageddon, Israel is going to be overrun by these other nations. And they're going to have control of Israel and the Temple Mount. So in verse 36, we see God's anger against the sins of the people of Israel. And he's actually going to, God is going to use the Antichrist to discipline Israel. Just like he did Antichus. So Watch these things, okay? He's a willful king, but he's an instrument that's going to fulfill the purposes of God. So, <clears throat> Daniel 11.40 says this. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and he, the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. The end of that 70th week is going to be the total consummation of the age, according to the King James Version. It's going to really mark the end of Satan's career as, as, as being that, that man of sin that he has been. But the war before that is the last conflict right before Armageddon. And it's, it's going to be overwhelming because we're not going to understand it. Um, 
Think about this. Satan is the prince of this world, right? He is going to use every trick and ploy he possibly can, but he's going to give the Antichrist, and we know this from studying Revelation a while back, <clears throat> he's going to give the Antichrist all the powers that he has. And that he's going to be allowing the Antichrist to do things that no one else can do. And the Antichrist is going to pass himself off as the Messiah. And that's how he's going to trick all these things. But the Antichrist is completely going to do Satan's bidding. And in 39, there's a statement there that says, with the, age, with the aid of a strange God of his own creation, he'll give worshipers honor and authority and the land as their reward. Now, what they're talking about is Palestine. So, say what? Yeah, yeah, wow. Um, the, the conflict that takes place, takes place in 41 and 45, specifically. So let's read that, and then we're going to read a diff bunch of different scriptures. And if you guys want to jot them down, or you want me to give you side notes on this, I can just get how many side notes we get, and I can run them off, and then you guys can pick them up this week or our Sunday. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Amnon will be delivered from his hand. Now, let's stop there for a second. He's, Satan is going to not involve some of these nations because they have the same mindset Satan does. They want to annihilate and do away with Israel. So he's holding them back. But this is all part of God's major design and plan because God's going to punish them more severely than he does the others because of the way they treated Israel. So stick with me in all this because it's going to get deep quick. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of treasures of gold, silver, and riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Cushites in submission. We're going to talk about who those countries are now in just a second. But the reports from the east and north will alarm him. He will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas of the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Okay, so there's, there's a little bit of explanation here. That glorious and beautiful land is, of course, Palestine. The king of the south is Egypt. But now the king of the north flips over and it's Russia. And I'm going to tell you why that is in just a second. They're going to combine forces and they're going to, they're going to cause a simultaneous attack against the Jews and take possession of Palestine. Okay? And this is not me. This is from three different intellectual scholars I've been following, putting this stuff together. And one thing I found this week, one other thing I found this week. By creative right, the land actually belongs to God, right? He created it. It's his. But the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, 
in the world and all who live in it, says Psalm 24.1. But God holds the land in trust for the Jews, and he gave that land to the Jews. So there's going to be, obviously, all these Arab countries that I'm going to talk about in a minute, and Russia have turned a deaf ear to God's warning in God's word. And they're not, they're not paying attention to that. There's a lot of this that is, is going to get deeper here in just a second. Okay? That 70th week, the last week that we talked about from the start, is going to end Satan's reign. We understand that. Russia is going to come down and join forces with Egypt against Israel. And the final conflict is going to begin. But it's going to be a war before Armageddon. And I know when we read it, sometimes we think it's just one big battle of Armageddon. But, but the way this describes it is two separate incidents. The land of Palestine was given to God by Abraham and his natural seed as their lasting possession. Um, like I said, the Antichrist is going to spare certain people and certain nations but they're going to come under God's strict um, punishment at the end. The final push for the Antichrist does happen against Israel in verses 44 and 45. But in 45, if you read it real careful, he says he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Where is that? He sets up his military headquarters on the Temple Mount. He's in Palestine. They are, now, they are now in control of that land. It's the Holy Land. He's on the Holy Mountain. The Hebrew word here, and I know we pronounce it Armageddon, but it's, but it's Harmageddon. Har meaning mountain, and Megiddo, which means slaughter. It is the mountain of slaughter. And that slaughter is going to take place at Armageddon. Um, the prophets are looking at many details of the, of the military strategies and the gatherings that are taking place. And the last words there, none should help him. Just when it seems the holy city is going to be destroyed, guess who shows up? Jesus. And he's going to stop all this. The divine judgment is going to come, and Jesus is going to pronounce it and take care of it. Um, the psalmist wrote, All nations come, come past me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about. This is from the King James. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them all. They compassed me about like bees, but they are quenched as a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them all. That's from Psalm 118. Um, no man is going to be a match for Jesus at the end. So this next verse that's on there is Ezekiel 38, 14 through 23. I want to read through that, and then we're going to get into some of these other things, okay? 
because it ties back to what we're looking at in Daniel. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog. Do you remember who Gog is? Hang on. Keep that in mind. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In the days to come, Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I proved holy through you before your eyes. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel. At that time, they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the beasts in the field. Every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all of my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment on him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstorm, and burning sulfur on him, and on his troops, and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So that's from Ezekiel. All these things are going to tie back together here in just a second. <clears throat> the Antichrist, along with the false prophet at the end, is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And I want to read Revelation 19, 11, and 21, and we're going to get into this other stuff, okay? I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped and dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth with a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. King of King and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the air, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty, of horses and their riders, and a flesh of all people, free, slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on the flesh.
from Revelation 19.11. All these things are taking place, but there are some things about Russia and uh, some of these other nations I want you to focus on for a few minutes. <clears throat> and this, this is some information I pulled up from three different websites that I typically look at in regard to end times events. Um, it says, today Russia continues to dominate many nearby nations. Russia sits as one of the members of the Security Council of the United Nations and still wields great influence on strong allies around the world, even with its downsized confederation. Russia is still a powerful and populous nation, exerting significant political influence across the world. Russia is clearly a key player in the world's political arena. What role, if any, will Russia play in the future of thousand-year millennium? The Bible foretells great conflict sweeping the earth at the end of time. A Middle Eastern power, the king of the south, will provoke a European power, the king of the north, who is predicted to conquer much of the Middle East. That's from Daniel 11, 40 and 45 that we just read. Then the European power will receive troubling news from the east and north. We see that in verse 44. North and east of Jerusalem are what? Russia and China. Nations that have grown closer in recent years with shared strategic interest. These are perhaps, these and perhaps other Asian powers will oppose the European power. So the European leader in verse 44 that we see will go out and with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. The kings of the east in Revelation 16 will then counterattack with an enormous army and will kill a third of mankind, according to Revelation 9.15. They will then move toward the Holy Land for a final battle with the king of the north. That's in Revelation 9.13 and part of what I just read to you. But God will cut off this violence and destruction and save mankind from extinction at this time. In the book of Ezekiel, <coughs> Gog and Magog, the people who have a connection with Russia today, in the Old Testament, uh, prophet Ezekiel, let's, let's, somebody look up Genesis 10, 2 for me real quick and grab a mic when you find it. Because I'd like you to read it. Because we need to identify Gog and Magog real quick. Huh? 10-2. Make sure you turn it on. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. Okay. And who is Japheth? He was one of the three sons of Noah. Yeah. That was on the ark. So who is Gog? He's one of the sons of Japheth. So he's a descendant of Noah. But who was the one that was cursed? Ham. Isn't that strange? I find that strange. Um, 
Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshesh, and Tubal, and prophesy against them, saying, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Meshesh, Rosh, and Tubal. That's from Ezekiel. These descendants of these ancient people are found in Russia. They are formerly of the Eastern Bloc nations of today. Historically, the land of Magog is the home of the Magogites of Ezekiel's day. According to the Greek historian Herodias and the Jewish historian Josephus, these descendants can be traced to the Sicanians of Roman times. They were a constant problem and thorn in the side of the Romans, but they all hailed from the same region of southern Russia and Ukraine. What do we see happening today? Identifying the kings of the north and the south. Ezekiel 38, 1 and 2 says this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Set your face against Gog and Magog. Magog, Meshesh, and Tubal are all the sons of Japheth, who was one of the three sons of Noah. They migrated to modern Russia, and if you read Genesis 10, 2 and 3, it talks about who those individuals are that Kathy read for us a moment ago. Rosh is the old root word for the land of Russia. Magog means the prince of Rosh. And God informs Gog and Magog, the prince and the land, in Ezekiel 38, 15, you will come from your place in a far north. And the Hebrew word means the uttermost far north. Now think about this. Tubala is identified as the city in Siberia. Gog is the king of the north. The king of the south is going to be the Arab-African nations. It's an Arab-African coalition that's going to fight. Ezekiel 38, 5 and 6 identifies the rest of the nations being dragged into the battle between Gog and Magog versus the kings of the south. It identifies Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them all of them with shields and helmets, also Gomer with all of its troops, and Beth Togomar from the far north with all of its troops and many other nations with you. Persia is referenced today of modern-day Iran. Have you, been, have you guys been following these Middle East events, some of you? Have you been watching what Iran's getting ready to do? They're getting ready to jump into the fray. Yeah. Cush, Cush is modern-day Ethiopia. And the other nations of Central Africa. Put and Libya are located in Northern Africa. All these players are coming into a line here. Gomer is of the people that settled in Germany, and Beth Togmar is of Asia Minor and Turkey. All these nations are basically going to align with Russia and they're going to battle against the king of the south. And they're eventually going to battle against the Antichrist. Stay with me. 
sometime before the beginning of the seventh year of the tribulation, that last week, the king of the south, those African Arab nations, and that coalition is going to raise up. And there's going to be, they're going to get the upper hand over northern Russia. But it's only going to be for a little while. It's only going to be temporary. Gog and Magog and its leaders are going to proceed, according to the theologians, with their own invasion of Israel. After that battle, that's when Armageddon is going to start. The Antichrist intercepts Gog and Magog and defeats them. The two battles described here are separated by approximately 2,500 years, they believe, according to historicals. Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, according to hermeneutics, that's the interpretation and the fulfillment. Uh, the first battle is going to take place is the nations are going to be during Ezekiel's where, during Ezekiel's time. This is where these dual fulfillments come in. The events of the first battle foreshadow the events that are going to be taking place during the second battle. So you have this dual fulfillment. You've got to keep that in mind. Um, it's going to occur in the later days of that 70th or last week. Um, and the tribulation is going to start. Speaking with a hyperbole, from a, a, you know a hyperbole is a literary exaggeration, a tool to make a literary exaggeration of a point. Right? God describes the devastating events of the battle between Gog and Magog this way. 38, 1 and 4. Through one through four. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, the chief prince of Meshesh and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army. And in 17 through 22, he says, at that time, this is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused. And in my zeal and fiery wrath, I will execute judgment upon them with a plague and bloodshed. 22 through 39 highlight, I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstorms, burning sulfur on him and all his troops. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the peace of the field, what we read a moment ago. Um, will, and the whole earth will tremble at my presence. On that day, I will give Gog the burial place in the valley of those who travel east towards the sea. It will block the way of travelers because Gog and his hordes will all be buried there. So it will be called the very valley of Haman Gog. Those verses, you looking at that 50 years ago, you, they couldn't understand how something that could happen. But since the discovery of the atom bomb, do you think a nuclear holocaust could cause that? Falling hail storms, burning sulfur. I mean, they're pretty well describing a nuclear holocaust of sorts. Um, what else could, and, and this is some questions, and this is from the blog. What else could... Uh, melt the face of the invading soldiers like hot wax. It takes Israel seven years. They anticipate for a nuclear holocaust, it takes seven years to decontaminate the land. 
How long is the tribulation? Hmm. Isn't that interesting? The burial of radiation and contaminated men and women and the injured would be even more. Thousands of invaded, invading soldiers would lie unburied. God would send the birds of the air to pluck the flesh and clean the earth. You see how it's been together? Sort of strange. Um, sounds like a grisly feast in, from Revelations 19 at the Battle of Armageddon also. Again, the passage has a double fulfillment. In Ezekiel's day, the Romans in 70 AD, Israel was decimated by nation after nation, fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecies. The above passages parallel the book of Revelation and the horrors of Armageddon. Now we understand the passages are no longer just a simple hyperbole, but the second fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy is coming. The events of the last days while Russia is destroyed by the Antichrist just before the seven-year tribulation will begin, Gog and Magon will rearm and take part in the war of Armageddon. As a result of the war between the King of the North and the Antichrist, Israel is open to signing, and we, we read about this, if you remember, a few weeks ago. Israel is open to signing a seven-year peace treaty with the Antichrist to protect them from other invasions. Yet, after three and a half years, the Antichrist will break the peace treaty by invading Israel, and all the horrors of the book of Revelation will begin. During those last days, God will bring armies of the Antichrist, Russia, the Middle East, African American, and Arab nations, and China together at the Valley of Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon. And Jesus will eventually laugh as at his enemies, because it says that in Psalm 2. Uh, the second coming, Jesus enters the fray and destroys the forces of the Antichrist, the king of the east and the king of the north, as recorded in Zechariah. 14, 12, and 13 says this, This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. For hundreds of years, Bible scholars have been trying to figure out what this possible plague could be that would ravage human bodies like that. But what they have decided is it has to be some kind of similar, similar instance of a nuclear bomb or atomic attack that is going to take place. But now, everything Zachariah predicted can come true through that thermonuclear exchange. And what is, what is North Korea threatening right now? What is Russia threatening? I mean, it, all this stuff is unfolding before our very eyes as it's outlined by the prophets. It, it's just very interesting to me to see this. Um, at the second coming, the non-believing Jews of Israel will see the nail prints in Jesus' hands and feet and side and realize that they crucified their Messiah. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Ju Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me 
the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for their firstborn son. During that time, God the Father invites anyone willing to come. In the Old Testament, it's, it's said this way, to kiss the son. And it's the same as we say in the New Testament today, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him as Savior and Lord. So they're, they're giving the opportunity. Many Jews will turn to Christ in Gog and Magog will now face the two final suppers. Revelation 19, 17 and 18 says this, I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the generals, the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then the wedding supper of the Lamb is going to take place. Two great feasts. Revelation 19.9 says, Then the angel said to me, Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The marriage feast, of course, is going to be the bride of Christ and the bridegroom himself. People often ask this question. Is the United States fit into this prophecy? Here's the troubling part. The United States is not mentioned specifically anywhere in Scripture. Now, now, wait. However, there is a reference in Revelation to the eagle which protects Israel during the last days. The eagle is the symbol for the United States. Revelation 12:14 says the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half time, out of the serpent's reach. How long is the time and times and a half? Three and a half years of the last part of the tribulation. Interesting thoughts to think about, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The closing statement of this, this particular theologian is the United States has always been a friend and supporter of Israel. By God's grace, we'll continue to stand by their sign. Because if we ever turn against Israel, we will inevitably suffer the same fate as the Antichrist and his forces. Things to think about. That's all I got. Is that enough to think about tonight? Will you not have nightmares? <laughs> yeah. We don't have to be a... I'm not sure we have to be afraid of it, but I think we should be aware of it so that we can try to warn others. And if it puts the fear of God in somebody, I'm all about it. <laughs> if you start piecing the, putting the pieces of the puzzle together and looking at all the prophecy and how it all fits together, and, and you, you look at it, 
it's amazing how many of the things are falling into place and how many of the things, especially if you keep in mind that it's a dual fulfillment of, of what the prophets saw then and what can be taking place in the future are some of what's taking place now. And how long is that time frame going to be? Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I think when the Lord comes, it doesn't matter where you live. Um, praise this prayer request tonight. 